Here's a verse of the Bible that's written in the Gospel of Luke by, well, Luke wrote it, but, but it's the exclamation that's connected to a woman who had longed and desired to see Jesus for years, who had waited night and day praying in the temple. And she says this, when Mary and Joseph brought baby Jesus into the temple to be consecrated, and coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him, spoke of Jesus to all of those who looked for, now here's the word that I've been studying with you for the last three, four weeks, spoke to him uh, to all of those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. It's Luke 2, 38. Now that, that word redemption right there, that's the word that really I've, I've tied to, as the Bible does, the Exodus story. Um, the Exodus story is the first time where we see that word used, where God says, I will. Future tense, he tells Moses, I will redeem my people. I will, that word means set my people free. And then after the children of Israel go through the Red Sea, Miriam, the prophetess, looks back and exclaims over all of the people just in this spontaneous act of worship, these are the people whom you have redeemed. And as I've said, that story, really, the Exodus story is our model of what redemption in Jesus really looks like. Jesus is the Redeemer. He's the one who sets us free. Everyone really kind of in church world and church circles and Christianity and that, that faith tradition really knows that. But so often, we're not really sure what the term redemption means. And so I want to flesh that out a little bit today. And I want to flesh out really some of the things maybe I, I can't, maybe by the time that I am finished talking through this with you in the next 40 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that, maybe I'll have the title. You'll see it by the time you're listening to this. But but right now, I'm really trying to think, is, is the title best that redemption and total redemption begins with love? Or should the title be something like causes and effects? Because uh, so often I think that we struggle and strive internally to manufacture a faith to cause it when really... It's an effect of realizing the gravity, the gravitas of the love that your heavenly Father has for you. So really, it is, it is an effect. Um, that, that'll make sense in a moment. Okay, by way of introduction, that's kind of a long rabbit trail to even get here. Uh, my name is Andy. I'm actually at the hilltop. I'm not in my kitchen. In the previous episode, I told you that I, I think I'm recording for the last time from the kitchen not in the kitchen anymore. I've got an office set up. I've finished the tiny house. I'm actually in the tiny house. I'm going to put a link in the show notes where you can watch this video that I put together. It's just really the 60 second mashup. It's it's not much of a tour because there are a hundred and something photos that just cycle through really, really quickly. But I'm in here. Uh, it's It has furniture. There are beds in here. Uh, there are projects I still want to do. Still want to add a restroom upstairs. Still want to add uh, and I've got the space for that. So I've got the walls up, got the sheetrock in there. I've got the uh, floors done in that room. Every room here is done except for the restroom. Going to add, well, a bathroom. It's going to have a shower at some point uh, in there. But house, completely functional. 
my daughter, Minnie, spent the night in the tiny house, which is connected to the main house by a bridge internally. So you can just kind of walk from one end to the other. But, it, but it's kind of like two houses that are one, that sort of thing. And I'm downstairs in the big living room, den, television room, whatever, uh, recording. And it's so quiet in here and peaceful. And just when you look out over the windows, across the back patio, back porch, just right into the trees, it's just a really, um, may, maybe I just kind of leave it at this. Uh, some of you know my story and you know that about the last two and a half years were struggle and strain and lots of stress. A lot, a lot of that started changing in the last year, but it is really one of those situations where you kind of step back. Many times I'll be down at the fire pit and I'll look up at the house and there's just this gratitude, this uh, overwhelming sense that in a real way, the Lord does restore all things. That in a real way, you read these Old Testament prophecies and promises where he says, I'll redeem, I'll take back the years that the locusts have stolen and squandered, and I'll gift them to you. I'll return them. And I'll return them in an even greater way that may not look like what you thought it would look like, may not look like what you'd even prayed for, but there's this sense that I'm seeing where our Heavenly Father is so good that even despite our sins, despite our shortcomings, despite the wrongs that we've done and the wrongs that are done to us, that there's always this trade up that He loves you, that He's for you, that He's for me, and that He's constantly, consistently working things for our good. Well, that, that leads me to this story about the Exodus and about the cross. And I've, I've been bringing these two stories, weaving these stories together. And I, I really have been comparing the cross and the Exodus story. And, and as I was started doing this in my study, so I'm kind of shifting into content now, off the introduction into the content. As I was reading through the Passion Narratives, that that's the whole name that we give to all of these... Um, these stories surrounding the death of Jesus, that 24-hour period, as I'm, as I'm reading it, it clicks. Because I'm looking at the Exodus story and seeing what God accomplished for the children of Israel who were once slaves, it clicks that Jesus accomplished far more at the cross than you and I have imagined that he's been radically successful. He's been far more successful than we imagined. And here, here's one of the things that helped me see that. I, I was reading one, one of the different authors. I read several books when I was putting this information together to teach it for the first time several years ago at the Dream Center in downtown Birmingham. And one of the authors that I read, he asked what seemed like a very simple question. The question was this, where did Jesus redeem us? Where did he redeem us? And, and the obvious answer was this. It was uh, the cross. Now, that's what I was studying at the time was the cross. That's what I was reading about. That's the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It's the event that literally changed all of history. The cross is always the right answer, it seems, in Bible world. B but 
as I read through several different authors, several different books at that time, they all suggested the same thing. They said this, Jesus didn't just redeem us. He didn't just set us free at the cross. And I know that sounds kind of like a weird, odd, maybe even a bold statement, but but here's, here's their line of reasoning. See if, see if you can follow this. The first part of it is a Bible verse, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, and Revelation 5, 9. So it's, it's actually two Bible verses, uh, and probably even more than that. Both of them say that we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Now, you're probably not surprised to hear that. If I said, hey, the blood of Jesus redeems you, you yes, I agree. We've heard that. I've heard it. You've heard it for as long as we've been around church. But notice this. The New Testament authors are emphasizing what redeems us, the blood. They're not emphasizing where that redemption happens, the cross. Okay, get that, mark it. They're emphasizing the what, not the where. And so the second kind of layer of this would be, since Jesus redeemed us by his blood, it makes sense that he redeems us not only at the cross, but at each place where he shed that blood. Now, I know, you might have to sit on that. You might have to think through it. But since we're redeemed by the blood, that means that each place he bled, it brings this element of freedom. It brings this element of redemption, meaning how and where he bled, it reveals something as to the nature of the freedoms that he gives us. Okay, remember, Peter says this, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Peter does not say were redeemed at the cross. Now, it's easy to just assume that he's talking about the cross or he's writing about it, but but when we read his text and when we read Revelation 5-9, where the people in heaven are all singing around the throne that he's redeemed us by his blood and, and the lamb is worthy because he redeemed us by his blood, it's easy to just assume that it's the cross because that's where he died. But I think that and this is such a subtle but powerful shift. It's not just at the cross. It is at the cross and the events surrounding the cross. Now think about it for a moment. The places that Jesus bled. You you see seven unique places. Okay, so in the garden when Jesus is there praying and he says to his disciples, say, sit here and watch and pray while I go pray. And he goes deeper into the garden of Gethsemane. The the story is that he prayed and you you know how it goes. He sweat great drops of blood. And and then after doing that a couple of times and going and finding the disciples asleep, he goes, hey, could you not, could you not stay up? Could you not watch and pray? You know, the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he goes back and prays again. And this happens multiple times. The soldiers arrive and they arrest him, beating him ruthlessly. And we read that he bleeds more, becoming bruised and battered beyond even recognition. You, You wouldn't even have been able to tell that it was him at some point. The scripture tells us that the Roman soldiers, they then took him and they scourged him with, with, with a whip. Uh, cat of nine tails, opening most of his back, exposing even internal organs and his blood. 
We read that they mocked him. They placed a crown of thorns on his brow. That caused more blood to flow. And then they took him to the cross. Of course, all this happens over an extended period of mock trials and, and bringing him out before the people. You know, who should we set free or should we release him or Barabbas? And they shout to, to crucify him. They, they take him to the crossbeam. They nail his hands into the crossbeam. He bleeds. His feet those become, as they nail his feet to the cross, to the upright support, those become another place of bleeding. And, and then, here's what's interesting. The scripture teaches us that the wages of sin is death. And we read that it's Jesus's death on the cross that is the payment for our sin. Yet, even though sin is paid for, even though it's atoned for, even after he's confirmed dead, a soldier pierces his side, punctures his heart by thrusting that spear up his abdomen. It, it punctures his heart and he releases more blood. So seven different places that Jesus bled. I'll, I'll put a list of these. I'll, I'll put a chart in the show notes where you can just kind of look and scroll and, and see it all there with some scripture references. The, the point is this. Jesus literally shed all of his blood. All of his blood for all of my redemption. All of his blood for all of your freedom. And, and I would say, as you look at it, this doesn't minimize the work of the cross at all. Sometimes when I'm talking about this, I, you know, I kind of get nervous because you see people's faces and they're going, wait, 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 redemption ju didn't just happen at the cross? And you, you look at it and you go, well, there, there's more. And here's that more. And I think that that more doesn't minimize the work of the cross at all. Rather, I think it amplifies it. It builds it up. You see, understanding the full scope of everything that Jesus did for us, it is like plugging the victory that he had into a megaphone. It is like placing the cross into an amplifier. Okay. Jesus bled at seven distinct places, not just one, and each place, it brought another degree of redemption, another level of freedom, another, let's just use the word that Psalms 103 uses, another benefit, another benefit of the cross to you and me. Now, I think that number seven is important. And all throughout the Bible, you, you see this idea that numbers are important. Let me maybe take a rabbit trail and dwell on that for just a little bit. Um, think about this one. The children of Israel, they cried out for deliverance. So, some of you listening may know this. They cried out for deliverance for 400 years from the time they were enslaved until Moses was sent to deliver them. 400 years. The Bible also tells us there were 400 years of silence between the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, and between the time that the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, who was actually his cousin, I believe, came and burst on the scene. there. In other words, that 400-year silence to redemption model was a steady number. Uh, we, we see another number, the number 40. The children of Israel, they spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering before they made it into the promised land. And, and then we see Jesus spending 40 days praying and fasting after his baptism, after kind of the public de declaration of, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, before he launches his ministry into what is uh, the invitation of the promised land for you and me. 
uh, maybe one more, in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, in the belly of a whale, Jesus also was in the grave for three days. In fact, Jesus repeatedly said, hey, I will give you the sign of Jonah. You, you can find that in Matthew 12, 38 through 45, I believe. Now, the, the number seven, and, and you could find all kinds of numbers in the scripture that, that seem to be very important, but that number seven, it's recognized as a number of completion of wholeness. It denoted that something was fulfilled, that it lacked nothing. It was total. It was all-encompassing. So when we read that Jesus bled in seven distinct areas, we see that his redemption, the freedom that he gives us, it's all-encompassing. Like there's no lack. There's nothing else that could be added to it. A couple talks ago, I think it was in maybe talk number two, uh, well, it, w- it would be kind of the first talk after the intro to this whole series of talks. I really talked about that idea of sozo, uh, that word that we typically translate in the New Testament as saved. And I told you that that word that we translate in the English language as saved, it can be used to mean uh, healing. It is used in the New Testament to refer to freedom from spiritual oppression. It is the word that is used to denote physical safety. It is the word that is used to denote salvation and spiritual awakening. It is the word that is all-encompassing. And when we see a sevenfold redemption, really, this is just another way of saying that. A, A redemption, a freedom, a shedding of blood magnified by seven, it's kind of like that. There's nothing omitted. There's nothing left remaining that could possibly even be added to it. It denotes total freedom with absolute certainty. Now, now again, think back to the places Jesus bled. This is going to be somewhat of a rewind review, but, but think with me. Let's just add another layer to it. What was happening in each of those instances? So first time he bleeds. He bleeds in the garden as he prays. At at the rock is how we envision it. And he cries out as he's sweating great drops of blood. This is in Luke 22, 42. Not my will, but yours. You can see him praying it over and over, just probably repeating it. Father, if possible, take this cup, but not my will, but yours. He bleeds, he redeems our will. Uh, now our souls, they can submit to the Father as well. You know, people say, uh, even theologians say that there's this bondage of the will. Well, Paul comes along in Philippians and he says, hey, n- now you have this capacity, you have this ability, and we'll do a whole episode on this in several weeks. You have this capacity now to not only know the will of the Father, but also to do the will of the Father. Like you you desire it. Like your desires can be synced with his. David even said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Not, not because you're going to desire something that he doesn't want you to have, but your desires are going to be so synced up. Unbound to sin, but bound, chained to the perfect will of the Father. Jesus bled to redeem that. If you, if you feel like, I, I can't get my mind right. I, I can't get my desires right. I th- The good that I want to do, I don't do that. As Paul prayed about his own struggle, 
but the stuff that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Look at it. Jesus redeemed it when he shed blood. Not my will, but yours. Uh, the second place he bled, he was, he was beaten and battered. Uh, when, when they hit him and they bruised him, a, a bruise is really blood that breaks when blood vessels burst underneath the skin. It's internal. It's bleeding that happens inside of you. That's what a bruise is. It is blood visible on the outside, but blood that has occurred because of battering on the inside. I think in a real way, Jesus dies, and before he gets there, he bleeds in this way. While he's going to die for our sin, he he bleeds to cleanse our conscience, to heal us of shame and guilt that's all associated with, with our own sin, but also associated with the sins that have happened against us. So some of you carry, as I have, you've carried a load of shame because of some of the things that you've done. I, I know I have. I know I've also carried maybe misplaced shame and wanted to hide some of the things that were done to me, things that I had no control over, things that other people did. And here we see there's redemption for that. Third place, Jesus bled when he was scourged on his back, when his back was shredded so much that literally his back is just open and exposed. Isaiah 53, 5 says, by his stripes, you're physically healed. The fourth place Jesus bled was when they placed a crown of thorns on his head. And, and the thorns weren't these little thorns. Like if, if you've seen my Insta stories and looked at the tiny house outside, I, I wanted to match this new house to the existing house and so I, I didn't I didn't think it was financially probably the best decision to build these rock columns up on the new tiny house as I had on the existing main house and so I, I just decided to do a whole nother feature and, and what I did was I, I built these arbors out of cedar across the windows across the top kind of, kind of like these trellises and I, I tied some ropes to the top coming down to the flower bed and then began growing some vines up from the ground with the other landscaping up to the top. And these vines are going to uh, hopefully soon. In fact, by the time you hear this, the vines are growing so fast, they may even be starting to, to wind their way over the windows. Um, one of those plants is wisteria, uh, purple bloom. Uh, one of them is clematis. Uh, that was referred to me by a friend of mine, uh, George Grant, up in the Franklin, Tennessee area. I helped him with some web things in his podcast from, from time to time. And, and another one of those vines was this climbing yellow rose. I, I don't even know what the name of that rose is, but it has these thorns. And so when I'm working on it, I have gloves, and the thorns on it are, well, they're, they're only about uh, a third to a half of an inch long. In, in other words, they're just a nuisance. They, they don't really inflict much damage. Well, when Jesus took the crown of thorns, the, the thorns that he had were thorns like 
that grow out in the Middle Eastern desert where they have to be hardy and protect the plants at all costs. And so some scholars say that those thorns are probably two, three, four inches, maybe even longer. And it's it's more like a wooden dagger, like the tip of a spear. And they made a crown out of this and the soldiers just thrust it upon his head and, and really just buried it into his head. And as they put it on and pushed it in snug and, and probably had to use a stick or something across his head to push it down into it would have really begun tearing the skin and he would have had a halo of blood coming down all around his face that wrapped his entire cranium well as, as i thought about what what does that redemption signify it i went back to the fall and one of the first curses of the fall in Genesis 3 was thorns uh, and, and thistles would, would come up, but mainly thorns, like the, the dirt would work against Adam now. And so he was always working, even before the fall. Work was a gift. Work was not the curse. The curse was now the toil and the struggle and the labor against the thorns. And, and really what I see here is Jesus bleeding to restore, uh, in a healthy way, prosperity. Now, now, I know that prosperity and the prosperity gospel have been abused, and people have been made to feel bad, and they've cheapened grace with the prosperity gospel. But, but I would say this, just because someone misuses or abuses a concept doesn't invalidate the truth of an accurate portrayal of the concept. And so really one of the things I'm looking at and studying is, is trying to figure out how and in what way did Jesus redeem to where work? It becomes joy, not toil. It becomes this act of worship and this act of, I was put on this planet and called to do this, created for this, and not toil. And, and once we figure out what that is, that's redeemed Two, fifth place he bled, um, and the sixth place, his, his hands and feet. And I really think that this happened to where the things that we do with our hands are blessed. The places that we go are blessed. He has redeemed what you and I do. He's redeemed where you and I go. We can walk the path. We can do amazing things. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 uh, through 10 that Grace not only saves us, but grace empowers us to do these incredible works that God planned before time began that you and I would, would walk in. And I really believe that the blood on the hands, the blood on the feet are an image of that. Seventh place, uh, Jesus bled when they pierced his heart. And I believe this happened so that we could experience joy and purpose and passion amidst the chaos of life. You know, the truth is, is as I've written in other places, as I've spoken in other places, this phrase that life is beautiful, but life is tough. Life is beautiful, but life sometimes is so incredibly hard. And there is this thing that we see, this tension in the life of Jesus, like Hebrews actually nails it and says that he endured the cross, despising its shame because of the joy set before him. Like there we see both sides of it. The life is tough. There's shame. There's things that we endure that we won't want to endure. But yet at the same time, there's joy through it. 
and somehow there's this redemption that like we won't totally see joy, happy, clappy all of the time, yet there is this reality that we still contend for the things that Jesus has offered and made available. Do you see? Like this is all complex. It's 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 profound. Like it it's it's simple. Once you see it, it's clear. Yet you see this pattern and you can't unsee it. Yet you see Jesus isn't just fixing a sin problem. He's creating a total redemption, a complete freedom. He's not only offering you and I a clean slate from the clutter of our misdeeds in our past. He's inviting us to a new way of life, a path that you and I are designed to walk, something that we're designed to walk from the very beginning. Well, that it, it really leads me to this idea of, how, how would you say it? How, how, how would you, it, it's kind of, maybe the idea is this, how, how do you access it? Uh, how, how do you apply it? How do you walk in it? For me, I think that I used to believe that you just work harder or or you just act better or, or you just do more right. But there's this idea that I see in Scripture, and, and this is kind of where the, the titling issue for this talk comes into play, and, and this is kind of the last concept I, I want to bring up is how, how do you access all of those things that Jesus has provided? Those things that really, I want to study them one by one over the next several weeks as we just kind of flesh out. This this is the topic where I'm going to land for a while. This whole redemption thing. See, I, I often thought that more information, that better book studies, that even a certain experience, that it could propel me to deeper levels of Christian faith or a better walk, uh, you, you might have felt, you, you might even feel the same right now. But here's what I'm landing on now is, is when you realize how much your Heavenly Father loves you, and when you see the expression of that love on the cross, you receive this empowerment to live the life that you're created and called to live. And it takes faith to do it, and and it's this encounter of his love that causes it. It, it, it. And somehow, all of that simply bubbles forth, overflowing. Like it, it's inside of us, I believe, waiting to, to spontaneously almost combust. Let, let me flesh it like this. Pa- pastors and theologians, people that study the Bible for a living or talk about it, you know, full-time every week, they tell us this, that there's two essentials for living the Christian faith and to living a life that pleases God. Faith is one. Obedience is the other. And they have Bible verses to back them up. Now, ride with me on this a little bit. I'm not about to lay a burden of things that you need to do or require some kind of religious duty from you. I think... I think that the beauty of both of these items, it, they're both completely missed when we reduce them to legalism. Okay, so the two things that are necessary to please God are faith and obedience. 
And it's this faith and this obedience that are actually going to help us to experience these different levels and different items of redemption that were gifted. I think both faith and obedience are the results of feeling loved, though. They're both effects, in other words. They're, they're not the result of a decision to be more spiritual, to act more religious. They, they aren't the causes, to use that term. They're not the things that make God love us, like some people teach. Both of these naturally emerge when we sense how loved we are. They're both the effects of seeing the Father's heart for you, of seeing how much Jesus is for you. Let me show you what I mean. Let me talk about faith first, and then I want to talk about obedience and maybe put a new spin on both of these as being the effects of feeling loved, the effects of seeing what Jesus has made available for you, as we've discussed in the first half of this talk, with everything that's provided in redemption. Okay, so faith first. Hebrews eleven six. it tells us this, without faith, it's impossible to please God. In other words, no faith, you can't please God is what that said. But you and I forget that faith isn't something we manufacture. Faith itself, it actually works by love. Galatians 5, 6 says that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You could even say it another way. You could say that if Paul's right in Galatians 5, 6, which I, I think he is, you could say love creates faith. You see, love is what makes faith work. Love is what builds trust. Faith and trust are close synonyms. You, you could actually say faith is trust and trust is faith. And when someone loves us and you and I truly feel loved by that person, whether it's a spouse, uh, whether it's a, a, a partner, that someone to whom you're engaged, someone you're doing life with, a close friend, a parent, uh, a child, whether it's even a, even a business partner, someone that's just, you know, they have your back. When someone loves us and we truly feel loved, we begin trusting that person. We have faith in them. Maybe sometimes it's just a little bit at first, but over time it grows um, and we manifest an assurance that we can offer ourselves more and more wholly to them. In time, we even feel more free when we're with them. We, we even use that language that when we're with them, it's just so easy. It's free. That's all the result of feeling loved by that person. And think about your kids. Uh, my kids trust me. They have faith in me. Your kids trust you. And the, the opposite's probably not true. My kids probably don't trust you as well as they trust me, and your kids probably don't trust me. And the, the issue there is the relationship. Your kids feel loved by you. Mine feel loved by me. And faith and trust are always connected to a relationship. They're connected to love. In fact, a couple years ago, uh, I was in therapy with one of one of the kids and studied some things, read some things that psychologists say. And they, they say that this trust that we have with parent and child is developed in the first six to 12 months of life. Some of you who've adopted kids know that the adopted child may struggle with that for that reason. Well, child professionals, they, they say this. They say, here, here's how that happens. Uh, a baby has a need. 
um, that they express that need, Gen generally by crying. <laughs> they generally cry disproportionately louder than the size of their body or even their vocal cords. So you or another responsible adult kicks in to meet that need. You either change their diaper, you feed them, or you just hold them. Those are really the three main things that babies need, right? When they cry, it's either they've got a messed up diaper, they need to eat, or they just want to be cuddled. The baby stops crying as soon as the correct need is met. I remember multiple times just kind of running through that list, you know, you check the diaper because the baby's crying. You assume that's it and you hold the baby. The baby doesn't stop crying. Like, oh, it must be feeding time, you know, or, or vice versa. You take the baby to mom to feed. Baby doesn't want to feed. Baby just fed. And then you're like, well, I'm holding the baby. And then you go, oh, the baby's had a blowout. So they stop crying as soon as you meet the need. What that does is over time, that child learns that they can trust you to meet their needs. They're not alone. They're not uncared for. Your consistent love, which love looks like showing up in real time and space. Love's not just an emotional flutter feeling. Love is, I'm here. And, and I'm not only here, like I'm tending to you. That type of behavior creates trust. It creates faith that the child has in you. Psychologists actually have a name for this. It's called the trust cycle. In the trust cycle, it works for a kid. And when it works for a kid, they begin trusting people more and more. Uh, when you see healthy, well-adjusted kids, you see the fruit of really a healthy trust cycle. The opposite is true too. When those needs aren't met, youngsters have trouble adjusting. Their world doesn't feel safe. They develop psychological and relational emotional issues. And the more I study that, the more I look at it and reflect on it and look back at life experience that I've had, I realize that that's how faith in God works. We have needs. We, we desperately have needs. We, we cry out for healing. We cry out because we're emotionally broken, wounded. We cry out because there's poverty, there's lack. We cry out because the will feels broken. We cry out because of, you just list through the different things that Jesus has provided. We cry out and somehow those needs are met. And as those needs are met, our faith grows. It doesn't mean life's necessarily just easy. But trust happens, and it's all an effect of love that's given to us by our Heavenly Father. You know, maybe just a question. Is God pleased with us when this happens because we manufactured or raised our level of faith? You know, I've been in a church services before where they, they get up there, an evangelist or somebody, raise your level of faith. They You know, they hype everybody up. I don't... I don't know that that's how it works. I don't, I don't think God is concerned with us striving to love Him more any more than I'm concerned with my kids striving and struggling to love me more. I think God's more interested in us encountering His love. He, he doesn't need our affirmation. We, we need His. He, he's pleased because of our experience with the relationship. You see, your kid's need your affirmation, you don't need theirs. When a parent needs the child's affirmation, it's not 
healthy. The parent is the giver. And as the parent gives the love, and, and remember over and over, Jesus tells us, hey, look at how parent-child relationships are supposed to work. Not necessarily how they always do, but look how they're supposed to. That's an image. Like if you can see that, you can see a glimpse into how your heavenly father loves and responds to you. And when you see his love, you encounter it, that faith grows. You see? He's pleased because we've received and confirmed his love. Faith is simply an overflow of receiving his love. Faith rises up in us as we sense this trust. Uh, I won't get into my story. I'll get into it another time. But some of, some of you know, two, two and a half years ago, I, I had less than $100 in my checking account. So you see everything happening with the, the house and everything happening with some of the projects that are going on and everything. And, and you can't reduce faith. I'm not trying to reduce faith to money. I'm not trying to reduce God's goodness to now I'm in a house that I absolutely love. I, but I, I tell you this, is walking a journey that seemed so hard, I encountered the unconditional, overwhelming love of the Father, and faith, trust in Him, it grew. D- difficult at first, but more solid, more stable as the experience goes on. The Apostle John, he, he wrote it like this. He said, this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. 1 John 4.10. You see, God starts that trust cycle. He starts that faith cycle. We don't have faith, so He will love us. He loves us, and then faith emerges. So without faith, it's impossible to please God, is what Hebrews says. Without faith, it's impossible because faith, I believe, it is the overflow of encountering the love. And when we encounter His love and receive it, He's pleased. When we encounter the love that His redemption offers... That, that is his heartbeat for us. Well, let me, let me talk about obedience uh, because we also read that obedience is essential to please God too. In fact, the Bible clearly says this, that if we love Jesus, then we will keep his commandments. And by keeping his commandments, we will abide in his love. So that makes it seem like in order to be loved by God, you have to to obey him. That, that's in John 15, 10, by the way. You can look, look that up. Now, I'm going to shoot straight. I mistaught this over a decade ago. And, and I taught this from the angle of if, if you love God, you'll prove it. And so, geez, if you're one of the people that heard that, I am so sorry. Um, let's evaluate it from the healthy side. Here's what I think. I don't think, I don't believe that we manufacture obedience in order to earn God's pleasure any more than we manufacture love and affection. Okay, Rather, I think the Bible explains that when we receive a revelation of God's love, that actually compels us to obey. Like it, it is some of the imagery that Paul uses, like in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ it the, the word there compel in the Greek language is hog ties. Like it literally lassos us and it drags us forward. It it pulls us forward. 
almost as if there's no other choice. It, it captures you, it captures your soul, and it moves you in line with, with his best intentions for you. So in the same way that love creates trust, love creates faith, okay, which creates more faith, I, I think obedience happens naturally. It's an effect. It happens naturally when a relational connection is made with a father whom we truly see has our best interest at heart. In other words, obedience spontaneously emerges when there's this encounter of love. Okay, think back to your kids. Or if you're an aunt or you're an uncle or you've got nieces and uh, nephews and or, or, or friends with small kids. Think, think about it. My, my kids obey me because they trust me. And they trust me because they feel loved. All of these fit together. When they don't obey me, it's because somehow trust is broken down. Okay? Works the same way, my guess is, in, in your house. In fact, you might have picked up on something that I've, I've noticed. Okay, when, when the kids feel unloved, they start acting crazy. Even sometimes then, they'll do things like rebel to get attention. And again, it's interesting that Jesus, who, who lived and loved in perfect relationship with his heavenly father, who's our heavenly father, that he suggested that you and I look at the parent-child relationship to get a glimpse of how God loves us. His admonition, his encouragement is that God always does even better. Okay? He does perfectly what you and I know to be an example of authentic love and obedience. He even asked, Matthew 7, 11, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father take care of, bless, walk with, look after you? And just as you and I are more prone to endear ourselves to the wishes and desires of people who have given much to us personally, in, in, a, in a healthy way, okay? So uh, because we feel loved, we feel valued, cherished, adored, looked after so much that the trust level's high. The Bible shows us that it's God's love for us that motivates us in the same way to desire to follow Him. So again, two things that please God in, according to Scripture. One is faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The other is obedience. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Both of those are essential, but they are both the results of feeling love, the results of encountering authentic redemption, the results of seeing what God has provided for you. They're not the result of a decision to be more spiritual, the result of this desire to simply act more religious. And I, and I would say this, like following him. Encountering that, it causes us to feel more of his presence. Now, he said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He's always there. But as we kind of follow the path that he has for us, you and I see, we sense, we feel more of his closeness, more of his proximity. That causes us to feel more love. That causes us to want to follow him more. That causes us to feel even more of his presence and goodness, which causes us to feel more love, which causes us to follow. It creates this cycle that keeps spinning. And if you just want to use that analogy of the, of the trust cycle, 
of, of like just this loop that continues on and on. Paul talks about us being transformed from one degree of glory to another in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And that's really what this looks like. Well, I think part of the problem is the church acts like fear is maybe a greater motivator than love and that legalistic rules are better at helping people walk out that whole cycle and access total redemption than just this overwhelming encounter with relentless, unconditional, unbalanced grace. You've You've probably heard sermons where preachers try to scare the hell out of you and then drop heaven right back in its place. You've you've probably heard sermons where they tell you, you know, turn or burn or obey or else. <laughs> you've probably heard sermons where they tell you that the reason you don't have provision for something that you need or the reason that healing hasn't happened, the, the reason that you, you can't get your mind on track, the, the reason that you can't break this habit or addiction, the reason that you can't is because you don't have enough faith. In, in other words, somehow the offerings of redemption that we talked about in the beginning of this talk, the offerings seem to in church world, be held back by you, by your lack of faith, by your lack of obedience. But that's not, that's not what the Bible teaches us at all. In fact, the Bible tells us that perfect love, like the love that God gives, 1 John 4, 18, perfect love eliminates, it removes, it casts off fear. In fact, in the show notes, I'm going to put a link to a podcast where I talk just about that verse. Fears not shouldn't be part of your equation once you encounter the love of your Heavenly Father. It means that a, a gospel, a sermon preached from the heart of the Father, it doesn't have a semblance of fear. You see, both of the vital ingredients of the Christian life are fueled by love. Obedience is fueled by love. Faith is fueled by love. It is love that motivates. It is love that captures your heart and moves you forward. That's why Paul wrote, the greatest gift that the church could exercise, 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest is love. It's why none of the other gifts and callings and things that we carry with us that are incredible that we could share with the world even matter if there's no love. You see, my prayer for you, and let's just crash land in the whole talk right here. My prayer for you is that the Lord would bless you and keep you, be gracious to you, shine His face of favor upon you, that whatever it is that you need, whatever it is that needs to be redeemed, whether it's your will, something in your desire, something that you just can't quite get internally right, whether it's lack of provision, lack of purpose, whether it's something for healing in your body, whether it's just the work of your hands, it just, it doesn't seem to be working out or the places that you go, you can't seem to get that right. Or whether it's this something in your heart, passion, purpose, joy, uh, maybe just for a cloud of depression to be removed that you would see that it's not a lack of your faith. It's not 
a lack of obedience. May you instead be encountered by the love of your heavenly Father who loved the world so much that he gave his Son for you. And as you encounter that love, may the love of that Christ compel you forward into the life that he has designed for you. Grace, peace. I'll talk to you again soon.